Well, thank you guys for coming this morning, and I'm looking forward to diving back in after the, the new year. Hope you had a good holiday. And as I was thinking about what to cover over the next several weeks, I think we're going to just focus on some topics that deal with leadership specifically uh, as men leading in our homes. And so I've entitled this series that we're beginning, The Skills, Habits, and Commitments of a Godly Leader. The skills, habits, and commitment of a godly leader. And so they'll range from very practical things like today to um, different studies on on topics of our character, uh, our disciplines, things like that. What, just thinking through what are the, the characteristics of a leader who leads in a godly fashion. And you know, <clears throat> leadership is one of those things that's pretty daunting. When you first get married, I, th- I think we're excited about the task of being leaders and leading our family. And then we quickly realize the responsibility that comes with that. And as a believer, you realize not just the normal responsibility that comes with leadership for all people, but the authority of God over us and the accountability that we have to the Lord for the way we lead. And it can be a daunting prospect. Uh, and so my hope is to equip you with the tools that you need uh, and myself, to lead our, our families effectively. And I think one of the areas that we as, as men uh, can struggle is just in decision-making. And so th- we're going to uh, cover decision-making in the will of God this morning and, and looking at how do we make godly decisions with confidence that our decisions are, are biblical and pleasing to the Lord. Because it's not just making a decision. Anybody can make a decision. I think we get crippled at times because we want to make a, a wise decision. We want to do what's, what's profitable for our families and uh, for, for our household and their individual lives. The issue is, in the Christian community today, we've grown used to phrases such as, God told me to do such and such, or I felt a leading from the Lord to do X, Y, or Z, or God gave me a piece that I should do, and so I did. And we're used to those phrases, even phrases like, God gave me a sign, and so I did this. And what's happened is we've sort of Christianized superstition, in a sense. Um, that's really all that is, is, a, is a, when we're going by this feeling that I had, or this thing happened, and so it must mean that I'm supposed to do this. It's just a Christianized version of superstition, or mysticism. Um, and, and it's not a biblical method for making decisions. But it is, I would say, the most common method. I mean, when you talk to Christians in general, why did you do that? Well, you know, I just, the Lord, I just felt, or I, I heard that. Those are the normal responses. And I'm, I'm not mocking that, because uh, it's a serious thing that we need to, I'm not mocking it because it, it's a serious deal that we need to confront, Right. Uh, because it's dangerous to make decisions that way. And, I, and I've seen such disappointment in people's lives when they were so certain that they knew God's will because of a sign that was fulfilled or a, a, a voice that they thought they heard or a feeling that they had. And then they made that decision. It turned out very badly for them and their family. And they're just devastated. And, and the, the, they're devastated because, God, why did you do this to me? Right? Because they're still holding on to that. I know that you told me to do this. And so why didn't it turn out well? So if that's, 
A, I want to talk about where does that come from, and if that's the wrong way of making decisions, what is the right way of making decisions? I would say growing up, what we're going to call the traditional view is what I just described, was the way that I, I just, I, no one sat down and taught me, you make decisions this way, but I just sort of picked it up in the Christian world. That's, that's where everyone makes decisions, that's what they do, and so that's how I was living my life. And I came to a crossroads in my late teenage years just thinking, this, something's off with this. This is just not an effective way to make decisions. And I, you're just constantly nervous that you're missing God's will. And it's an awful place to be if you genuinely are trying to follow the will of the Lord, but you never really know if you're doing it, right? That can't be what God intends for His, His people. And so what we're going to do is go through kind of a book review of a book called Decision Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. If you haven't read that book, I encourage you to read it. It's, a, it's not a small book. It's probably about that thick, but it's really helpful um, and one that I highly recommend. We're going to sell it in our bookstore when we get that up and running. It should be in the next few weeks. We'll have it, and you can buy that or you can go on Amazon and grab it. And what he does is he walks through the traditional view and then a biblical alternative to the traditional view. So let me just describe the traditional view, as he calls it, in four quick points. And I think that'll make sense. And then we'll dive into how do we actually make biblical decisions. So this is, these are the points that he gives for the common traditional view. Number one, the premise. The premises of the traditional view is that for each of our decisions, God has a perfect plan or will. So every decision you make there is a perfect plan that God has, and you have your job is to find that plan and make decisions according to that plan. Secondly, the purpose. The goal of the believer is to discover God's individual will and to make decisions in accordance with it. Thirdly, the process. The believer interprets inner impressions and outward signs which the Holy Spirit uses to communicate God's individual will. And then fourthly, the proof. So the premise, purpose, process, and proof. The proof, how do you know that you got it right? The confirmation is that, um, that you've done it correctly is that this, you have an inner sense of peace and an outward successful result. So you feel good on the inside and things go well on the outside. And congratulations, you did it. Um, that is... I, yeah, it went well, it must be true. It must be, yeah. And if it goes badly, it couldn't have been what God wanted, right? is the other side of that. And, and so that, I think, I don't, I don't want to give a false statistic, but I would say 90% of Christians, I mean, just from talking to people, um, make their decisions this way. Um, but it's a faulty way of, of discerning the will of God. And it's, it's even a misunderstanding of God's will and how it even works and what God intends for us. So I, I, I think, this was a book that Tom recommended to me a long time ago. And it was like, yes, it just resonated uh, with me, and I think it will with you also. And this, these are the problems that he outlines with the traditional view. Um, it's, it's not really helpful just to poke fun at it. It's more helpful to say, well, what, what, why is that wrong? Well, here's why. One, Scripture does not teach that God has a detailed individual plan for every person in the way that the traditional view describes. What he means is, does, the question, does God have three wills or two? We're going to talk about that in a minute. The traditional view would say God has three wills, and they include this third type of God's will that's, that's a branch of His sovereign will that is an individual will for you and me. 
And we're supposed to find that individual will and live our lives according to it. And so that's why you hear phrases like that, uh, your best life now or, or God's best. The idea is if you make decisions and you miss that individual sovereign will of God for your life, you're now on the second track, third track, fourth track removed from the best life that God intended for you. That's the idea. The Bible does not teach that God has an individual will that's separate from his overarching sovereign will over all things. Okay? Secondly, this view is inconsistent and no one can apply it to every situation. For example, typically this is the kind of decision-making process that people talk about when they have big decisions. But they would never make normal life decisions this way about, you know, what to eat for lunch or things like that. And if, if we're going to have a decision-making process that's biblical, it's got to be one that, that affects all of our lives, where, where it's not just a category of decisions that go this way and there's another category that's different. Thirdly, this review res- results in confusion, anxiety, and fear. Uh, have you ever personally experienced or met someone that's just crippled to make a decision and, it, and it's what what is so heartbreaking is it's genuinely motivated by a desire to please the Lord, but they're so confused on how to know if they're pleasing the Lord that they're just stuck in making a decision. That's that's what this view results in. Fourthly, this view does not even make rational sense. So, for instance, if it's true that God has one perfect individual will for each one of us, and you make a wrong choice. What does that imply about the rest of your life? So God has one individual will. Let's say he has one individual will for who you will marry, and you get it wrong. Think about the the ripple effects of that. You're now not only on your second, third, fourth best plan, but now you've messed up your wife's best plan because you weren't her, her best plan. And now you have kids, you have the wrong kids. You have, you know, it, it's, it just goes on and on down the road, right? Like it's, it's all, and you're messing up the spouse that you were supposed to marry and she's messing up. I mean, it just turns into this, this mess. What, you know? The kids would have the wrong What's that? The kids, the wrong kids would have the wrong spouses because of the Right, you got the wrong house, the wrong dog, the wrong car. I mean, I mean, you're, you're, and now you're stuck, right? And you can see why people then use that, this is a rabbit trail, but to justify a sinful decision to make a correction to how they missed God's will the first time. Well, I was never supposed to marry her. I misheard the Lord, right? Um, And it's almost like if we make the statement, well, God told me, or I believe it's God's will, that shuts down the conversation, right? That's That's the authority. And since that's true, nobody can tell me differently. It's a, it's a very dangerous position to be in. <clears throat> Two more issues he brings up. Number five, it completely it's completely subjective, so it leaves no room for wise counsel. That's the point I was just making. If it's all about how you feel, then where does a, a brother or sister have any authority to come along and say, well, you know, let's let's test that according to the Scripture. What, are you telling me that I didn't hear the Lord? I mean, God, I saw a shooting star. I, this happened, you know. It's that sort of thing. And then finally, six. It produces strange and unbiblical methods for discerning God's will. My favorite example is one that Tom shared with me when he was in college. He had this, this guy on his floor that when he had to make a decision, there was a gumball machine at the end of the hall. And this is a true story. And he would go down and he would pick a color. You know, if it's a green gumball, 
I, God means I do this. If it's a red gumball, it means this. You know, pick if he's going to ask a girl out or whatever. And uh, he really made his decisions based on the gumball machine. But that falls back into this idea, call it a fleece, call it a sign, call it whatever you want to call it, where we make up these, these rituals that really are no different than just cracking open a fortune cookie and, and doing what it says. So here's the, the real question we're trying to answer, as I mentioned before. Does God have three wills or two? Um, I believe biblically, and what he argues in this book, is that God has two. And when I say that, uh, this is what I mean. The Bible describes God's moral will, or his revealed will, we could call it. Same thing. What's in the Bible, what's written for us on the page. And then his sovereign will that is unknowable, that he's chosen not to reveal to us. And that's it. There is no third branch of his sovereign will where, he, in addition, he has an individual will that he intends for you your whole life, like a treasure hunt, to try to figure out what it is. Okay, Moral will, a.k.a. revealed will, the Bible, sovereign will. Okay, And we're never told anywhere in Scripture that it's our job to discern God's sovereign will that he's chosen not to reveal to us. Everywhere in Scripture, what you will see that we're supposed to discern is based on this book. No, meditate on the Scripture day and night in the Word of God. Know the revealed will of God and trust God for the things He's chosen not to reveal. Okay, that's really what it boils down to when we're talking about the will of God. So now with that in mind, this He, he has taken... A different approach that he calls the way of wisdom. So we have the traditional view and the way of wisdom. And this is the approach I'm going to recommend to you as you think about making biblical decisions. He expounds on this in the book in, to levels that I won't be able to. So I do encourage you to read the book. But here's the idea. He breaks the way of wisdom down into four points. The first one is, where God commands, we must obey. Where God commands, we must obey. Secondly, where there is no command, God gives us freedom to choose. Where there is no command, God gives us freedom to choose. Thirdly, where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. He gives us wisdom to choose. So, number one, where God commands, we must obey. Number two, where there is no command, God gives us freedom to choose. Number three, where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. And then finally, number four, when we have chosen what is moral and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work out all the details, or work the, together the details for good. When we have chosen what is moral and wise, basically, we trust God. This is the idea. So, really, as you begin to think about it, that's, that's what the Bible teaches about decision-making. And uh, as we go through this, I hope it, if there was any, any lack of clarity in your mind about how to make decisions, um, that that clears up for, for you as it has for me. So we're going to walk through each of those four points that he makes in, in, in broader detail. So the first one, where God commands, we must obey. Remember, this is referring to the revealed will of God, the scripture, the moral will of God. And God gives examples of his moral will in Scripture, uh, things like this. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't get a divorce, except for a couple of very specific caveats, such as adultery. Don't marry an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians 7. 
have no hint of sexual immorality. Those are, those are clear commands in the Scripture that are inside the moral will of God. And what's interesting is God's moral will actually covers much more than we tend to give it credit for. We're too quick to go outside the Bible and begin, well, I just need to go out in the woods and think about it, and God's going to zap me with what to do. When we have this, this book, and much of the decisions that we have to make uh, will be answered in God's moral will. You know, he, uh, in, in the book, he deals with the fact that we're not, we're not only thinking about the actual decision that we have to make, but our motives uh, and our perspective and goal in doing that. Because both the decision and everything along the way have to be in conformity with the will of God. So if the decision that they're making is in and of itself not a sinful decision, but you know full well that your motivation for making that decision was, it is still wrong for you to do. Right? Does that make sense? So when we're talking about God's moral will, we're talking about not only evaluating the decision itself, but our attitude, perspective, and motivation behind making the decision that we're making. <clears throat> so if the first step is to, to study the revealed will of God, that means we have to know the Bible. If, if I have to make sure that what I'm doing is in accordance with God's moral will, then we have to spend some time studying the Word. And so that's why I recommended things like the, the year read-through that I sent out. Um, why, why read through the year in a Bible? Why read through the Bible in a year? Is it because you're less of a Christian if you don't? No. It's because if we only read those things that we think to read in the Scripture, we'll find ourselves in the same books over and over again. We'll be in whatever your favorite epistles are, and maybe the Gospel of John, or you'll just kind of rotate through those books, and you'll know those, those well, but you're missing the scope of Scripture. And what I want you to understand is that all of Scripture is the revealed will of God, and so it is helpful, whether it's in a year, two years, three years, to be on some kind of a plan where you're going through the Bible in its entirety. Because over time, what that does is I've noticed that it kind of stacks up. When you add a year, two, three, five, ten of going through the Bible, your overall general knowledge at 30,000 feet just grows. And that becomes an aid to you as you make decisions. Now, in addition to reading it sort of at the high view like that, things like Scripture memory, Scripture meditation, that's why we've built Scripture memory into our small group process because it's so crucial, A, to battling sin, as we talked about in previous lessons, and, and two, in making biblical decisions, finding a good study Bible. Particularly if you're, if you're newer to studying Scripture, Get a good study Bible. In the back of that study Bible, it will be topically arranged. Um, and so if you're wondering what God says about any given issue, you find that topic and you can read those verses in their context to get a full understanding of what God says on that issue. But nothing can replace a daily pattern of Bible intake, being in the Word of God. And at times, it may not feel like much happens in that little window. It's kind of like going to the gym for 30 minutes. Not much happens in one day of going to the gym for 30 minutes, but do it for 30 minutes a day for a year, and things happen, right? It's the same way in our spiritual disciplines. Just put one foot in front of the other, in front of the other. That builds up over time. It's going to make you a better leader because you're going to understand more clearly the, the revealed will of God. Now, secondly, 
God given freedom, God gives freedom and responsibility to choose. So in areas where it's not clearly defined, um, if it says it, you have to do it. But if it's not clearly defined, God gives us freedom to choose. He has a quote by Augustine. Augustine says, love God and do whatever you please. Uh, biblically defined, I would say that's right. If, when we take, say love, if, if love is biblically defined, if you truly love God, that means you're desiring to please Him and all of your affections and motivations are under that. Do whatever you please because whatever you please is going to be what pleases the Lord. That's the idea. Um, think about this. Where does this idea of having freedom to choose come from? Think about Adam and Eve. What was the one restriction God gave Adam and Eve in the beginning? Don't eat of that tree. Did they have to consult God every time they wanted to eat from any of the other trees? Did they have to pray about whether they wanted to eat the apples or the oranges for breakfast? No. What did they do? They just ate. They just get within the freedom. So the restriction was don't eat of this tree. But the rest of it is, is for you for you. And so they, they had the freedom to choose within those bounds what they wanted to do. And God was pleased with that choice. Um, you know, this is even evident in, in how human laws work. For example, if you're at the beach and there's this posted sign of rules about how far you can swim and yada, yada, yada. Do you have to go and consult the lifeguard if you want to do something that's not listed on the sign? No. It's, it's intended, the whole idea of laws is that don't do these things, but outside of that, you have permission, right? That's the whole, the whole way that laws work. It's like sometimes when you go in an airport, especially, there'll be a, a speed limit for the, the top and the bottom, right? And you have like a 20-mile-an-hour window. So if it's 50 and, and, and 20, and I want to go 35, do I have to ask anybody about that? I have, I have freedom all within there, right? That's the idea. Think about the nature of sin. The Scripture defines for us what's sinful and what's not in the moral will of God. But if a particular decision is not directly addressed by God's commands, our goals and our goals and our attitudes are right, then we cannot sin in making that decision. So if, if the issue is not a moral issue defined by the Scripture, and my attitude and perspective along the way and motivation are also in alignment with God's Word, then I can't sin in making that decision. And there's a lot of freedom in that. Because I think sometimes not only do we not realize how far-reaching the moral will of God is, we try to put things in there that aren't in there. So we struggle with both of those. We feel guilty at times when we try to make a decision um, that we shouldn't feel guilty about. And then sometimes we, we don't feel guilty about a decision that we should have consulted the Word of God on. Both of those things can happen. Sometimes Christians feel guilty because they fail to get a leading from God about a given decision. When A, that's not even the way we make decisions, and B, it's not even a decision that, that God has given us direction on because it's in the area of freedom, right? It's within the bounds of, of a free choice for us. The nature of sin requires that where God gives no command, there is freedom. Think about even the Levitical system uh, when it comes to the, the laws in the Mosaic Covenant for eating and washings and things like that. Think about the dietary restrictions. It's, it's very detailed what you could and couldn't eat. But as long as it was on the clean list, just like Adam and Eve, there was freedom to choose what you wanted to eat that day. Think about the, the Nazarite vow. 
You didn't have to take a Nazarite vow. Only when you took the vow were you required then to follow the requirements of the vow. But no, but God didn't say you have to take the Nazarite vow. Um, even in the, in the New Testament, it gets even broader, especially with things like giving and food, things like that. With giving now in the New Testament, rather than these percentages that are defined for us, the Bible talks about our, our, the character of our heart, that we're to give joyfully, regularly, sacrificially. But nowhere does it list a, a given percentage that we must give. It's much more about the heart. Um, with, with marriage, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, he's speaking to widows, but the principle goes beyond that. And it says that the widow may marry whoever she wants in the Lord. You see that? The, whoever she wants in the Lord. The idea, as long as he's a believer. Okay? You see the, the freedom there. She can marry whoever she wants as long as they're a believer. Um, that's the, the believer part is the restriction, and then there is freedom for her. That, that's the way all of our decisions are. They're either clearly, usually there will be an aspect that's clearly defined, and what we're doing when we're making decisions is figuring out where are those boundary lines, what has God clearly defined, and am I in the area of freedom? And then we look at our motivations. In the book, he has frequently asked questions because he's published this book uh, several times over 25 years, and people, write, readers will send in questions, and so he'll answer those in updated editions. So I've got a few of those in here that I thought were helpful. One frequently asked question is, does this mean that God does not care about decisions that he's not specifically addressed in the Scripture? And he answers, the positive way to express it is to say that God is equally pleased with two options that equally conform to his moral will. If you have two options and they're both equally good, God's equally pleased with either of those. That's the idea. <clears throat> Think about human choices and God's sovereignty. It's important to recognize that, that God's sovereign will not only cannot be known, but it can't be thwarted, right? God is not up there with an infinite number of paths and, and constantly adjusting His sovereign plan based on you and me. He has a sovereign will, and it is coming to pass, and it will come to pass just as, just as he says it will. But with that, this is the mystery. The Scripture describes this for us, but it doesn't give us all the details. God is sovereign over all things, and yet he gives us freedom to make choices. And they're real choices for which we are responsible. Both of those things are true. We make real choices, but God ultimately is sovereign over them all. Thirdly, he says, where there's no clear command, God gives us wisdom to choose. And I think this is one of the most helpful things. So, number one, we make choices based on the moral will of God. Secondly, if it's not in the moral will, we have freedom to choose. But thirdly, we do have wisdom principles given to us in the Scripture to guide us in making decisions. The Bible's filled with this. For example, when Moses asks advice from his father-in-law in Exodus 18 on how he could better shepherd the people of Israel. We have wisdom books in Scripture. Think about the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and how the Proverbs are filled with short one-liners of just wisdom about how to make decisions in life that are according to what God calls wisdom. God sets the standard for wisdom. And so when you read the Proverbs, you don't take the Proverbs as, as promises that if I do this, I'm absolutely going to get this result. You take them as general wisdom uh, qualities that guide us in, in making decisions in life. We see it in the epistles as well. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-3, to 3, 
when Paul decides to send Timothy to check on the church in Thessalonica, he says, we thought it best to send Timothy to you. What's he saying? It seemed wise to us to send someone to check on the church. So we did it. He's not saying, this is an apostle. God did speak to, to Paul at times. But in this case, he's saying, I didn't have a word from the Lord. It just seemed like a wise thing to do. And that's where we live our lives. Here's some other quotes from, uh, from apostles when they're making decisions in the New Testament. We thought it best. I thought it necessary. If it is fitting, it is not, if it, or it is not desirable. It seemed good. I have decided. Those are all pulled direct quotes from apostles' mouth about how they made different decisions. And so we have to understand, even in their life, while God did speak to them and give them real revelation, the majority of their days and lives were just like ours, where, where God wasn't just constantly whispering in their ear, go here now, okay, now go do that, say this to him. That, that's not how they lived their life. Those were, those were rare moments when God intervened in that way. So in the area of freedom, the believer's goal is to make decisions on the basis of what he calls spiritual usefulness. Spiritual usefulness. Let me define it for you. By spiritual, he means that the ends in view, as well as the means to those ends, are governed by the moral will of God. That's the spiritual aspect. The usefulness part means that do whatever works best to get the job done within God's moral will. So we're putting those two things together. This is what God's will says. This is the best way to accomplish what God's moral will says. That's spiritual usefulness. Okay, Doing it the best possible way that it can be done. <clears throat> what do you think of this? Uh, Paul said, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Mm-hmm. It sounds like his mind's always like that. He's always weighing those weighing, weighing those things out. Yeah. Did I make a decision that was in keeping with God's word and that was wise? I mean, I think that's that's the way he lived his life. A.W. Tozer called it a sanctified common sense, right? Doing, doing what God says in the best and most effective way to accomplish that. Um, Ephesians 5, 16 and 17, God commands us to be wise. Let's look at that. Let's look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.15, Therefore be careful how you walk, or that is how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Turn over to Mark chapter 7. And verse 12. What's that? What you say? Bible <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mark chapter 7, verse 21. Uh, this is the idea that, that foolishness is a sin. In the area of wisdom, we're required to do what is wise because foolishness is a sin. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. When you think about the opposite of wisdom, the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. 
the Bible refers to the godless man as the fool from the Proverbs constantly. You don't want to be the fool. The, the wise man does this. The fool does this. And so the point that he's trying to make is that while we have this great freedom, it doesn't mean that we just go woohoo and run out and do whatever we want to do. That freedom is governed by wisdom principles. Okay? And so if we know that a choice is sort of in this area of freedom, but not wise, it is sin for us. That's what he's that's the point that he's making. <clears throat> we have to also think about, as we've talked about our motivations, our attitude and our approach. Realize that God is, with our attitude, when we come to make decisions, we realize that God alone is sovereign and that we desperately need Him. And so we pray. We pray when we make decisions. But we're not praying for God to speak a word to us to tell us what to do. We're praying for His wisdom, right? We're praying, God, give me wisdom to make a choice that's pleasing to you. Secondly, our approach. How do we find wisdom? What are the wisdom avenues that God's given us? Well, he lists five. Number one, if you want wisdom, ask for it. That's what James says in James 1, 5 to 6. If any man lacks wisdom, let him pray. Ask God for wisdom. That's the first way we, that's the first thing we do when we start to make decisions. Pray. Secondly, search the Scriptures. Be like the psalmist. Read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about the Word of God, exalting the Word of God. And he just constantly says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Right? It's sweeter to me than the drippings of the honeycomb. Uh, a day and night, in the night watches, you know, I'm meditating on you. On my bed, I'm thinking on the Word. He just, what does he do? He saturates himself with the Word of God. If you want wisdom, search the Bible. Thirdly, those are the two... Uh, priorities. Ask God for it. Pray. Search the Scripture. But beyond that, things like outside research. Um, that's not unbiblical. Think about Joshua. When Joshua goes to take over the promised land, God's told him, I'm going to give you this land. I want you to do this. But what does he do? He still sends out spies to Jericho, right? Before he goes and takes it over. And God doesn't condemn him for that. Um, he, he uses wisdom. He makes a wise choice. He does his research on on Jericho before he goes in and takes it over. Um, so outside research can be helpful. We we did that when we were deciding what kind of church building to build at Countryside. When we built the worship center, we had different builders come in and make their pitch on how we should do it and why we should do it that way. And we consulted them as we were praying and thinking through the decision. Fourthly, seeking wise counselors. Um, those with spiritual insight and life experience to help you make that decision. I would say all five of these are helpful, particularly when you're making a big decision. I wouldn't make a big decision for your family without going through all of these steps. Find a godly man who's further along in the faith than you are, who perhaps has faced whatever situation it is you're facing, and say, can we go to coffee? And ask and then listen when he speaks. Um, Wise counselors are told or were told to seek wise counsel in Proverbs eleven fourteen, Proverbs thirteen twenty, Proverbs fifteen twenty two. Those are all examples of places we're told to seek wise counsel. And then five, the fifth one, life itself. Think think through your own life experiences and the history of the world and those you personally know. And I would say, particularly with your own life experiences, say we. we 
say to yourself, is this one of those examples of an area where I've struggled in the past and I've made foolish decisions before? Am I somehow justifying this because I want to do it when I have this, this pattern of making foolish decisions in this way? Don't just trust yourself. Look back at the, your life history and the decisions you made. Think about others who have made similar situations. This is why I like reading history books. Um, and you read about wars and how they started and how they ended and people's lives and biographies. Because you learn, you're like, oh, that's, don't, don't make that decision. When those kind of decisions pop up in your own life, you begin to see the ramifications of such kinds of decisions. So those, those five ways of seeking wisdom are helpful for us. This is another frequently asked question in his book. If I conclude that one choice is wiser than another, am I free to choose either option? And he says no, because the moral will of God includes the command to be wise and to seek wisdom. And so if in your research you have two choices within the the bubble of freedom, but one rises to the top as the wise choice, you must choose that choice. To choose outside of that choice would be then to knowingly choose an unwise option and therefore sin. The fourth issue he brings up then is when we've chosen, once you've made your choice and you've chosen what is moral and what is wise, Trust the Lord to work all things together for good. It's important to have a, a, a good, robust view of the sovereignty of God. Because we have examples in Scripture where God told someone to do something, and it didn't turn out well for them in the human sense. Think about Joseph. I mean, I just I wonder, I mean, Joseph was a godly man, so maybe he didn't, but I just, there had to at least been one night in prison of the nights he was there thinking, what happened? I mean, what was that dream that I had? Woo, I've just been what I ate for dinner or something because this is not happening the way that God said. I mean, think about Job. We know Job. We, hear, we have Job's thoughts. I mean, Job was, was as God, God describes him, as a righteous man. And then he loses it all. I mean, and not just possessions, but his, all of his kids die. I mean, uh, Tim Hawkins makes the joke that everyone died but his wife, and he's like, "What does that? What does that say about his wife?" Right? <laughs> if Satan said, "I'm going to, I'm going to leave her here," <laughs> anyway. No. Um, but I, you think about the the most important example, of course, is Christ Himself, the the Son of God in, in human flesh. From a human standpoint, He was murdered, but from God's sovereignty. It was exactly what had to happen, what needed to happen, and it was good. And so I think of when Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side, and they get halfway across the thing, and they're about to die from the storm. Was that, did, did he just make a mistake? Did he not read the weather right? No. It was, they were, were they going the wrong, did they mishear Jesus? No. He said, get in the boat and go to the other side, and they ended up in the middle of the storm because that's exactly where Jesus intended for them to be. Right, And so the point I'm making is that when you go through the process and you make a choice and you're confident, not because of a feeling you had or a leading you had, but because you went through the process, it's in, I followed the wisdom principles of Scripture, and it doesn't go well. You research that car, you read every review you can, you check all the title history, you take it to a mechanic, you get it, and a month later, transmission goes out. What do you do? You trust the Lord, Right? You trust the Lord that He's sovereign and we are not. You know, you take that job, you leave a good job and take what seems to be a better job, you do all the research, a month later the company folds. I mean, those, are the, those things happen. 
so what do we do? Do we get mad at God and check our fists and wonder, God, what are you doing to me? No. We trust the sovereign will of God, that He intended that for you, for good, and for your family. If He intended it for me, He also intended it for my wife and for my kids. Sometimes when we go through trials, we see it affect our family members, and we feel bad in the sense that oh, this thing that's happening to me is, is negatively impacting you. But here's the deal. God intended for that for them just as he intended it for me. And he intends to bring good out of it for them just as he does for me. That's what's so freeing about this. Because in the other view, when things go bad, what do we do? We get angry, we get fearful, we get anxious because we feel like we've missed the Lord or that God has somehow been unfair to us. But when you have a robust theology of God's sovereignty it all begins to come together. Not that we understand the why it's happening, but we understand it has a purpose. It matters. That diagnosis, that whatever it is, it matters, it's on purpose, and God has a plan for it. So as we close, I want to go through five aspects of God's sovereign will that I think will help you as you think about God's sovereign will in your own life. Number one, the Bible reveals that God's sovereign will is certain. That is, it will be fulfilled. Think of it. You can write down Acts 4, 23. Acts 4, 27, 28. That's from the life of Christ, that it was God's sovereign determination that Jesus would come to die to sacrifice for sin. While he was legitimately murdered, and those that murdered him were guilty of that murder, God is the one that sovereignly determined that it would be that way. It will come to pass. We cannot thwart God's sovereign will. Secondly, it is detailed. It includes all things. So while, it, while it's not true that God has this sovereign will for your life that's sort of a separate entity outside of his umbrella of sovereignty, it is true that every detail of your life is planned by God. That's also true. It's just it's part of his sovereign will. It's not this separate plan. Think, think about Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.11, it says, All things are underneath the sovereignty of God. In Proverbs 16.33, even the role of the dice is determined by the sovereign will of God. Romans 8.29, 2 Thessalonians 2.13-14, our salvation. Um, there's, certain, there's a bunch of passages we could go to for that. Ephesians 1, as far as our salvation being sovereignly ordained by God. The existence of creation. Um, the, rule, the plans of rulers, Proverbs 21.1, that the heart of the ruler, it's like, it's like channels of water and God moves it which way he wants. Every single detail of our lives is underneath the sovereign will of God. Thirdly, it is hidden. The sovereign will of God is hidden except when it's revealed by prophecy. So we do have some knowledge of what the end times will be like from Revelation and other places. We have some knowledge of what heaven and hell will be like because God has chosen to reveal that to us. But beyond the actual prophecies He's given in the Scripture, God's sovereign will is totally hidden to us and we're never told to seek it. We're never told to try to figure it out. We're told to trust and trust that God is good. <clears throat> Fourthly, um, it is supreme. So that what the idea is that it's, it is supreme overall yet without violating human responsibility or making God the author of sin. That is what the issue that many have with the sovereignty of God 
is it, it can be born out of, a, out of a genuine motivation to somehow protect God from the implication that if he's truly sovereign over all things, then it must mean he's the author of evil and the author of sin. But the Bible has many truths like this <clears throat> where it says, this is true and this is true, and deal with the tension. And the truth, the Bible says, is that God is sovereign over all things and that man is absolutely responsible for his choices and his sin. God is the primary, the theological way to explain that is God is the primary cause of all things. But man is a secondary cause and that he makes real choices and God holds him accountable for those choices. God is able to be sovereign over all things and the ordainer of all things, yet without sin. Think of uh, Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Think about um, <clears throat> 1 Peter 1, 14 and 16. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That, that's the, the, the testimony of Scripture over and over and over again. God is absolutely holy, not the author of sin, and yet He is completely sovereign over all things. He is the, the ultimate one, the supreme. <clears throat> now, the final aspect of God's sovereignty is that it's, it's perfect. God's sovereignty, His sovereign will is perfect in the sense that it always accomplishes the result of bringing about glory to God and good for His people. And I think when we think perfect, we think of our comfort. Perfect is when it goes the way that I'm the most comfortable and happy. That's perfect. That's not God's idea of perfect. God's idea of perfect is it brings Him the most glory and makes you the most like Him, right? Conforms you to His image. And so when we think of it that way, it's absolutely perfect. And that helps us answer the question, why would a perfect God create a world where sin could enter? Because it was the best plan of all plans. It was the best plan of all plans. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly good and holy, then that means that He only chooses what's best, the very best, every time. And that means this was the best possible plan of all plans. That's why he did it this way. He could have done it any other way. He wanted to do it, but this was the best possible plan. Now, <clears throat> a couple of things about God's sovereignty, and then we'll close. God's sovereignty doesn't erase the need for careful planning. As we've already seen, we must choose use wisdom. Um, our circumstances, I think this is important, our circumstances in life provide the context within which we make decisions. But they are not signs from God guiding you to make decisions. See the difference? My circumstance may put different options before me that I have to evaluate and make a decision about. But we're not to look at our circumstance and say, okay, well, if this happens, God must be meaning this. And, and often what we'll do is we'll use that, uh, our, co our context or our circumstance as a way to test God. But what we're doing really is we're using wisdom principles and clouding them with thoughts of signs and wonders. We'll say things like this. If my financial advisor tells me that I can afford to buy this, it must be God's will, right? Those kind of, but what we're doing is really taking a, a principle, a wisdom principle, and saying if I have the money, then I can think about buying it. 
But we, we can be tempted to turn them into all sorts of goofy things. Open doors are not divine commands. They're simply opportunities that need to be evaluated. So just because you get a call and it seems like, oh, a new job, a new whatever, uh, it's an opportunity that needs to be evaluated. It's not necessarily God saying, do this. What's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, we, the, they need to be carefully evaluated as we make those choices. Um, so I, we don't have time. I have some examples I could take you through. Um, but I hope that those principles at least lay out a framework for you. That the next time you have to make a decision that affects you and your family, work it through those, those four processes, those four th- questions. Is it, is it clearly defined in God's moral will? If it's not, then it's in the area of freedom. So what are the wisdom principles that the Bible applies to that that I need to, to use? And then make a decision prayerfully and trust the Lord. To me, that's such a freeing process, right? Because I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to figure out things that God didn't intend for me to figure out. And then I'm not feeling guilty all the time. If I did my best, I prayed it through, I searched the scripture, I made the wisest choice that I could make at the time, and it tanks. I trust the Lord. If I make a stupid decision, I just run in blindly, and it tanks, that's on me, right? But if I use genuine wisdom, seek wise counsel, and I can, best I can tell it's according to the scripture, then I trust the Lord. And whatever the results are, are the results. Let me pray, and then if you have questions about that, uh, if you, I want to pray and close, so if you need to hurry on to work, you can go. If you have questions, you can stay and ask those. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, that it is uh, your revealed will to us, and we can trust it. We also thank you that you are sovereign. So for those areas where you have not chosen to reveal the exact details of what your plan is, We know you, and we know your character. Therefore, we trust that whatever your plans are, they're the perfect, they're perfect and best. And whatever your plans are for our individual lives, we trust you, that you will use us for your glory, and you will cause us uh, to, to be made more into your image. And so, God, help us today to be thinking on these things. Help us to lead our families well and to make decisions that are wise and that please you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.